Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and we're recording this episode on Thursday, October 12th, just five days before the start of the NBA season. I know I'll be posted up on the couch next Tuesday to watch the first games of the year, and I'll probably have my trusty laptop right next to me so I can continue to read and review student essays as we draw nearer to the big early action deadlines in November. Today's show is coming to you from a wet and chilly afternoon in the Pacific Northwest, but I've got a cactus next to me to remind me of hotter days and drier climes. i got to do what i got to do, I guess. Uh, we've got a good one lined up for you. Our final segment today will run through everything you need to know about the FAFSA, that all-important form for federal student aid, and we'll give you some words of encouragement if you're hesitating to press that submit button on your college applications. But first, we want to talk about a huge piece of the college application process, extracurricular activities, in part two of our Standing Out series. To help me work through the conversation today, I'd like to welcome my colleague, Zaragoza Guerra, formerly of the MIT and Caltech admissions offices, currently of College Coach. Welcome to the show, Zaragoza. Thank you, Ian. Glad to be here. And I got to meet. It's a beautiful day here in Boston. I know. You were bragging before we went on the air, and I'm sort of looking outside (laughs) like, come on, man. It's October. It should be better weather here than in Boston. But I'm happy you're happy. Let's put it that way. Uh, in in your experience at MIT and Caltech, I, I know that you saw a lot of standout students, um, from academic stars to extracurricular superstars. And when we think about standing out, I think we often go to those very best students. But I'd like to actually start with students that might consider themselves average. Um, there are there are ways for average high school students to stand out in application pools with their extracurricular activities. It might take a little more thought and planning. What would you recommend for a kid, maybe they're a ninth grader or a tenth grader, and they're trying to figure out what to do outside of the classroom at school? How should they get started? Great question. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I might recommend is to kind of do an inventory for what the student feels his or her interests are. Uh, you know, when, you, when you're thinking oftentimes of a resume, uh, an extracurricular list, you know, people oftentimes talk about passion and demonstrating that passion. Well, oftentimes in like ninth grade, 10th grade, the student might not necessarily know what their passions are, but they possibly could know what their interests are. So I'd start, you know, doing a field, you know, getting an inkling or what those interests are, and, and then figuring out how you might perhaps take those interests and then later on down the road, in a year's time, in two years' time, turn those things into a passion, okay? It doesn't happen all of a sudden, you know, the, these passions don't just spew, uh, you, you know, like Athena springing out of the head of Zeus and, you know, fully formed. These are things right. that, that happen organically with time. And you've got to kind of be patient and, and, you know, take some pulse points here and there to figure out what those interests are. And I recommend maybe, you know, two, three interests, you know, maybe one that's academic and two that are extracurricular. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. And I, I, for students that I think are having trouble figuring out where to start, 
you know, you can often in the first few months of school go to some meetings, uh, talk to other kids that, that you know that you like if they're going to different clubs or activities or organizations and try some things out. Uh, is there a, a recommendation that you give students as they're sort of looking at the suite of available options at, at high school and, and how to consider those options or, or how maybe to look beyond just what's available at high school to things that are prevalent in the community? Yeah, I'd say this. You know, think about what your middle school experience was. You know, what were the, some of the things that you liked doing there? Um, because those are probably going to be some of your first options, and they're probably going to carry on over to high school. Um, no one, you know, all of a sudden, you know, becomes a great piano player by simply taking on the instrument in a year's worth of time. You know, they probably played it o- o- over time. So if you picked up band, uh, in middle school, and you still like it, you know, keep it up. You might be able to develop some kind of uh, talent for that, and you're going to learn a lot of things moving forward. So if there's something that's really pushing your gut in terms of some of the experiences that you had in middle school, see how you might be able to carry them over. And I just, you know, it has to start somewhere, and I don't think uh, you're necessarily going to be able to know where out in the great wide world <laughs> to pursue these activities. So start closer to home. Take an inventory. Take stock of what's being offered at the school itself. So if you mm-hmm. think that you like math and science, maybe join the science club. If you think you kind of like writing, perhaps you know start with the school newspaper. Uh, it has to start somewhere. And I think just getting a feel for what you like is going to help you along. And, you know, later on down the road, you can definitely build upon those experiences to perhaps start pursuing other things um, in other ways. Yeah. It's, and it's okay to try things and decide that you don't like them and, and move on to something else. You know, you're not going to be penalized if you start writing for the newspaper and you decide that that's not the type of writing you want to do. And so you move to the literary journal. Um, you know, it's okay to make those adjustments. And I think colleges are going to expect that shift. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, they're, they're going to see those tweaks. Yeah, you know, when students are doing extracurricular activities, it's interesting you brought up middle school. I think they often just sort of, they follow what they like to do and and they get involved in the stuff they want. But then once ninth grade starts, I think there's this idea that now what I'm doing, it matters for college applications. And there sort of is becomes a little bit of strategic planning on the part of a family for what colleges want to see. Are there specific kind of activities that colleges want to see more than others? I don't think there's necessarily anything in particular that a school is going to look for. I think when I was an admission officer, what I try to determine is, does the student enjoy what they're doing? More so than try to figure out exactly what they were doing. So, and I get clues on that. You know, oftentimes you're going to see patterns here. So if you, you know, participate in basketball, you know, and you, you happen to like basketball. And then I see that down as one of your extracurricular activities. And, and then I see that you're also doing it as a club sport. Or I also see that perhaps you are coaching a team at the Boys and Girls Club. I'm starting to get an idea that, hey, this is someone who likes basketball. That's kind of cool. Um, I'd rather see something like that, you know, build upon those things than, you know, a list of 15 20 disparate activities that have absolutely no connection with one another. Um, and I think that's probably what a college university is going to look, be looking for is, uh, you know, is that student exploring the things that they really love 
doing. It might vary from school to school. I, I mean, if you're applying to a school of math and science, yeah, they're going to want to see some math and science activities on there. Uh, sure. One would hope uh, you know, that you're exploring those academic interests. But they're also going to be expecting to see some of the things that are happening on the non uh, academic side, you know, some of those uh, non-co-curricular activities, some of those extracurricular activities, whether it's athletics, whether it's music, uh, whether it's volunteering, whether it's a job, uh, right. it, it can come in a variety of different forms. I think even if you're looking at those schools, like, like an MIT or Caltech, and you want to do some extracurricular activity in math and science, you should like doing it, right? It should be something that you want to do, because otherwise those are schools that are not going to be a good fit for you in the long term. So they sh- it should be a natural part of the answer to that first question you posed, which was take inventory, find out what you like to do, and then pursue those options. Um, I-, I wanted to ask you, sometimes it's, it's helpful for students to set goals, uh, as they think about their engagement in an activity or just with respect to anything they do in their lives. But it can be hard with an extracurricular activity to set a goal because it's this sort of amorphous experience. You know, how do you have a, a goal that something is tangible that you can zero in on um, it, to, and build towards over the course of your high school experience? I'd say this. You know, even when I'm working with ninth graders, I have them put pen to paper and write down everything that they're doing. And I have them describe what they're doing as if they're filling out their college application in ninth grade. And, you know, I I don't expect it to look like what a senior might contribute to a college or university, uh, but it's at least an effort to put everything down. You know, ask your parents. You know, and oftentimes I, I might get the response, well, I'm not necessarily doing much, and, and you... Yeah, it forces one to take stock because all of a sudden, once the student starts asking those questions, they find out they're probably doing a lot more than they think. And uh, once they've got things down on paper and they've, they've written down what they've been able to accomplish, it becomes a little bit easier to figure out, okay, this is what this looks like now. What do I want this perhaps to look like a year from now? And it might not necessarily be that I'm going to all of a sudden become captain of uh, the math team. You know, those, mm-hmm. there's some external circumstances that are going to have to take place before something like that can happen. But I am in control whether or not I'm going to participate in another math experience. Maybe I decide to get involved in a summer math camp, okay, which could impact you know, my participation in the math team, you know, later on down the road. So, you know, don't necessarily just zero in on the things that you're doing. Think about, hey, how can I expand upon this? Maybe with a complimentary summer experience or maybe with another experience that um, is going to help me develop this basketball talent. Because um, yeah. those are certainly some, some things that you can put down on, on that resume. Right. And I, you know, this is great advice for all students, right? This is something for everybody to think about as they're building, you know, their engagement with their high school and with their community. These are things that make your life more enjoyable. They make you a better citizen of your community. And and they have the added value of being good for your college applications. Uh, I want to ask whether um, the, the approach should be different if students have their sights set on some of the more selective institutions um, places that admit fewer than, you know, 
50% of their applicants, maybe a third or fewer, or even those highest uh, levels of selectivity like your Ivies, your MIT, your Caltech. Uh, yeah. Is there a difference in how students should approach their, their extracurriculars? I think it's not necessarily going to be a difference in approach. It may be a difference in perhaps expectations. Okay? So if I'm looking at, you know, I give this advice to any of my students, whether they're gunning for an Ivy or an MIT or a Stanford or they're, they're gunning for their local um, college. Okay? Um, and, and the reason I say that is because I, I want to think about, you know, in terms of these extracurricular activities, not necessarily how it's going to be presented to a college, but what kind of skill sets that you're going to get out of this. And I think that that's going to be important for any college or university. And, and when you're developing those skill sets and when you're developing those passions, hopefully if you're someone who's got a super passion for something, that's going to be evident to an admission officer at some of those super selective schools. Um, I would I would say that the expectation is going to be a little bit different in the sense that they might be expecting perhaps some distinctions that go beyond the school, that it's not necessarily you're participating in the science club, but maybe you take that to then participate in a research experience, but that you're not necessarily just participating in a research experience, but maybe then you're taking that experience and using it to make a contribution to a local science fair. And maybe that local science fair contribution then goes to the state level uh, or the regional level. So it's pretty much the same foundational concepts, but you might be moving the needle a little bit further away from your school to maybe a regional level, to maybe a statewide level, uh, to earn those distinctions um, from th that are imposed upon you from beyond the school environment. Gotcha. I think that that's really, really helpful to think about those levels uh, and ways of, of drawing a distinction between yourself and others that might have similar engagement in a, in a similar type of activity. Um, this is application season right now, and you know we're helping students with their applications and their extracurricular profiles. Uh, I want to ask, you know, we talk about standing out in terms of what you do, but then you sort of have to put pen to paper and describe what you've done. Uh, how can students make sure that their extracurricular activities stand out when they're being presented on the page? I think this. The student is going to want to use the application platform to their advantage. So I take a look at the, the Common App or the Coalition App and, and see, okay, how many, how many activities can I put on here? If, if they're telling me I, I can put 10 activities on here, what are my most important 10 activities? And I need to make sure that those activities are front and center that that's the first thing that an admission officer is going to see are my most important activities or the activities where I feel I've been able to contribute the most to. That's first and foremost. Second thing is realizing that the Common App platform or the Coalition App platform or some of the other application platforms out there are going to give you uh, the ability to describe your contributions. And I see oftentimes some students make the mistake of describing the activity rather than describing their contributions to that activity. Uh, so you don't need to tell me what 
the National Honor Society is. As an administrative right. officer, I know. You know I've, I've seen it a million times. Don't tell me what that is. Uh, you need to tell me, <laughs> what did you do as part of the National Honor Society? Or what did you do as part of the math team? If, if you were part of the math team, how many members were on your team? Where did you go? Did you go regional? How did the team do? What was your team record? If you were on the basketball team, hey, what was the, the team record? Did you get any, team, did you get any distinctions there? Um, if you were part of the orchestra and you've been playing uh, in the orchestra for years, well, what was your repertoire? Where did you perform? Were there any particular concert halls that you can let me know of or any particular pieces of music that can give me an idea of your musical abilities? So provide a lot of context, um, be descriptive, and they give you plenty of room to do that. Uh, I've seen you know, plenty of students who get started uh, with their activities list, and they started off as a list. <laughs> and an admission officer doesn't want to see a list. They right. want to know what you've been able to do within those. Why, is, why are these things important to you? What level have you, you taken this particular activity? Yeah, it's an opportunity to say a little bit more about what you've done, and, and those opportunities should be taken. Zaragoza, we're really glad to have the opportunity to talk to you today, and, and we're thankful for your expertise as a part of this team. Thanks for coming on the show. Glad to be here. Take care of you. Will do. When we come back, we're going to give you seniors a little pep talk, so don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Before our next segment, I want to run out a description of yet another college in our School Spotlight series. As a reminder, you can find this school and many others on our College Coach blog at blog.getintocollege.com. It's a great way to learn about institutions you maybe have never heard of. Pop quiz. Is the College of William & Mary public or private? And do you think it's small, medium, or a large school? You may be surprised to learn that William & Mary, named after King William III and Queen Mary II of England, is a public liberal arts college with nearly 6,300 undergraduates. It's often considered a public ivy because it draws such high-achieving students while charging thousands less than the sticker price of its Ivy League competitors. Tuition costs are guaranteed not to increase for in-state students, while qualifying out-of-state students can receive up to a quarter of their full cost of attendance in the form of merit-based scholarships. As the second oldest college in the nation, it was founded back in 1693 before the town of Williamsburg was even established, William & Mary has graduated three U.S. presidents. In addition to offering outstanding programs in government, psychology, and biology, the college also has a unique partnership with the University of St. Andrews, whereby students can study for two years at each school and earn a single BA degree. While the college is steeped in history, its campus today is noted for its vibrant, diverse, and innovative character, a definite gem. Karen, William & Mary isn't too far away from where you live, is it? No, it's about three hours away, and I will say that there are probably some people in the state of Virginia who don't realize that William & Mary is a public college, so I think you've educated a lot of people there. Wonderful. For those of you who don't recognize that voice, my next guest is Karen Spencer, former admission officer at Georgetown Franklin Marshall, resident of Virginia, and she and I are going to pose up for our office hours today to help you know when you might be ready to submit that application. Welcome to the show, Karen. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. It's great to have you. And hopefully you won't. Are you having nice weather out there? Um, well, today fall finally arrived. It has felt like summer pretty much the entire time that um, I have uh, for the last week and a half, which is kind of froze and not like summer in a nice way, like 80 and really humid, <laughs> which is not so fun. But today is about 64 and dreary. So it's starting to feel more like a summer. <laughs> 64 and dreary. Wonderful. Great. Um, so that means that means we're getting closer to deadlines, right? Uh, the show is going to air on October 19th. And there's a big deadline coming up, one that we talk about a lot on our team. Do you want to tell our families when that is and what it's for? Yes, this is the time when um, I start to think about the fact that I can open some champagne. It's November 1st. November yeah. 1st is the winning um, date or the, for the very first serious round of applications to go um, out the door. November 1st is um, an early action deadline for many, many schools. It's an early decision deadline for many, many schools. And it is uh, like the priority deadline um, for many schools, uh, like the University of Maryland, for example, which is also near me. So it is a big deadline. It is something, it's got a heavy push. It's when a lot of kids can breathe a bit of a sigh of relief once that's out the door because they may have one or many, many applications that are going out the door on November 1st. So um, it really um, is, is a big deadline for a lot, a lot of students. So there are a lot of moving parts of the application. 
And even if you know when your deadlines are and you've got kind of the basic pieces together, there's still a lot to do. You've got your essays, your activities list, your personal info. It can be hard to be sure when things are actually done, done. Um, How would you recommend students make final reviews of things like their essays and their activities list? So, you know, I think, you know, early on in the year, we can talk about kind of under-editing. I always tell students, you know, I always sometimes wonder how many edits they would do if they weren't, you know, some of our clients, <laughs> you know, would you have sent that in that first draft? That would have oh, this is good enough. Yeah. We, no, I'm we, done. Yeah. Of course, I'm sure that at some point where you can also over edit. Um, and so, you know, I think you want to take a good look at your essay, reread it. Sometimes I encourage students to read it out loud. This is frankly yeah. a good policy, regardless of where you are in the editing process, be it your last draft or your first. Um, a lot of times things that seem like they make sense in your head when you read them out loud make a lot less sense um, or don't sound as, as eloquent as you thought they did. Um, so what I would say is to, you know, maybe read it out loud, um, it, you know, proofread it for typos. I think you can always have a friend maybe proofread it. You know, the one, one of the challenges of, of reading something over and over again is that Sometimes, you know, I could have misspelled my name at some point, and I'm not sure I would have, you know, I would have caught it at that point. Um, and so, um, you know, proofread it, maybe have a friend proofread it just for typos. But then at some point, you also have to press submit. And um, you can also over-edit because um, I've seen students kind of – it starts to shift the essay and not necessarily in a good way, right? It starts to all of a sudden take on a different path, right? So now we've changed that paragraph a little bit more. Now we've changed that paragraph a little bit more. And now we're not really talking about the same thing that we started talking about. And at some point, you've got to stop doing that, right? Because A, it's due. And B, now we're not writing about the same thing anymore. We've got, we've started to over-edit. Um, and so again, there's a fine line in that too, that there's a magical way of knowing when you're starting to hit that category. Um, but really, I think you want to go with your gut. Like, does this sound like you? Is this really your best work? Um, do you feel like you could get into a better spot? And, and again, I think it's interesting. I think you want to ask her, would more time spent on this be better, make it better, or would it just make it different? Right? Better right. is one thing. Different is a different story. Different starts to tell me that you're over-editing. Yeah, I think about like the comparison to an artist who's working on a piece and 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 keeps adding paint, and, and it just totally shifts the image that's being developed. And you know, at least with uh, editing your essays, you can get back to that original version if you haven't overwritten the file. You know, something like an artist painting, it, you you might lose what you had done previously because you're putting more on top of it. So, you know, at, at each step, I think be ready to think, is, is this really something that I'm happy with? Um, what about at, once you're happy with that essay, and it's okay to be happy with your essay, I'm seniors, you can, you can be happy with where it is. Uh, is there anything that you should double check after you've put the content into the application itself, into the platform? Yeah, so I mean, for those of you using like a common application, for example, which is going to be many, many people, um, what I do like to see is someone do what's called, what's called print preview. A lot of applications have this this option is to have a, a preview version, usually in a PDF, um, and you can kind of see what it's going to look like when the admissions officer looks like, which is different than the platform you're looking at it on um, or in, in that manner. And I think it's because it looks differently, you see it differently. And, again, I think this is where typos, errors, omissions, things like that tend to be a little bit more glaringly obvious. And so, again, I would have you do the print preview. Even I would might even suggest printing it off. I realize that's super old school, but, um, you know, look at it in paper form um, and then also look at it on a computer, kind of double check. Did I leave anything off? Did I misspell something? Because, again, I think when you see it in a different form, you kind of see it with different eyes, and that's where you catch a lot of those typos. 
Yeah, yeah, and and I think again, having some more people look at it, it's always good to have multiple people look at it before you send it out. But um, but then you got to sort of press the submit button. But I think there are some questions because there are supplemental documents. I talked to our colleague Abigail on a couple of shows a while back about different documents, supporting documents that go along with the application, and a lot of students worry about all of those pieces coming in at different times and getting together. Is there any order? that students should consider in terms of their putting in their application versus letters of recommendation and test scores, uh, anything for students to worry about in terms of an order of operations there? So I think back in the day when I was still in an admissions office where we had paper applications, which was sadly not that long ago, um, this is maybe the yeah. kind of time when it mattered, when it would help to kind of have an application ready to kind of receive things, right? There was kind of a, a place for everything to land, so to speak. Um, in this day and age, with everything being submitted electronically, that is really not a concern. And whether you send your SAT scores in first, whether you send your app in first, the teacher rec, you know, how things come in, this is so uh, done everything electronically that by and large, this is not going to matter kind of what order you send them in, they're all going to show up at the same, you know, place eventually. And nobody's going to read your application until it's it's ready to go anyway, so it's not that big of a concern. I mean, there you might ask your high school, you know, we asked my colleagues, our colleagues, especially before we went on, just to see if anybody had a different opinion. And some people did say that sometimes guidance counselors prefer that the application be submitted ahead of time just to know that there's, a, you know, that, that it's actually been submitted so they don't actually have to submit their recommendation letter to a school that you ultimately didn't apply to, right? It's kind of a wasted um, a wasted effort on the guidance counselor's part. Um, but as presuming your high school does not have any requirements on their end, now the answer is, is an easy no. As long as it all gets in on time and by the deadline, we don't really care when it arrives. Yeah, and, you know, I actually, you sort of reminded me of a question that I, I wanted to ask you. Um, and this is something that's come up with a few of my students who I just started working with. Uh, because there is an October 15th deadline for um, for Georgia Tech and UNC, and yeah, action. Places, right? Right, uh, yeah, and and that will be gone by the time this airs. So I hope you all got your applications in. But there's a question that comes <laughs> up, which is, when, what should a student think about in terms of hitting that early action deadline with work that might not quite be their best? How do you weigh um, the question? of whether to submit, to hurry and submit that, that early action app versus applying in the regular round. Um, what would you say to a student who's not feeling great about their stuff, but they need to submit it if they're going to get it in on time? So, I mean, I think it depends on what kind of deadline we're talking about. I mean, if we're, if we're talking early action, um, you know, where early action is really not a significantly easier way of getting into that school than regular decision, which for, by and large, most schools, it is not. Um, then I'd say you might want to wait, especially if you're like a bubble candidate. You know, if, if, this is, if this is a reach or, you know, a sort of a reach for you, you want to absolutely put your best foot forward if it's an early action school. You may actually differ on that opinion. I'd be curious to hear your opinion. But generally say, you know, I love early action for a student that is ready because I think there's no real downside to it. And you could possibly find out earlier. If you don't get in, it's because you were never going to. So why not just get that over with and be able to move on? So I do love early action for almost everybody, presuming, as I always say, though, big asterisk, 
that you have everything ready to go, that your testing is all done, that, you, you know, your essays are in good shape, things like that. If, if your essay is really not ready to go and it's early action, then I might suggest reading to regular decision. Uh, I change that answer slightly, though, for a school like, for example, the University of Maryland, which has a priority deadline of, I think it's November 1st, right? That's a little bit different story because priority deadline is assuming the thing like, this is important to us that you get it in now. We'll still take your application later, but it's really not going to help your chance at admissions. For those kinds of schools, I might say, you know, stay up a little extra late, put some finer touches on that, and still get it out the door because I do think uh, a slightly weaker essay is still probably less of a challenge um, in the admissions process at that point than getting it in past the deadline. But I'd right. love to know your thoughts on that because I'm not sure we would have a universal answer on that one. Maybe well, we ideally, ideally, our, our junior families are listening to us right now and they're saying, well, you know what we're going to do is we're just going to start nice and early next year and we're not going to worry about running up against the deadline. But I know there are some parents of seniors out there for whom this question definitely does apply. Um, and I, I'm sort of with you on early action. I think I think there are some exceptions. There are some schools that um, it, it does help to apply early action, but you're never doing yourself an advantage by turning in a shoddy application. So you, if you scramble to turn something in that's not good just to hit that deadline, you're going to lose all of the advantage and then some of applying a little bit earlier. Um, so I, I tend to think early action students who are admitted tend to look a lot like regular decision students who are admitted. And if you can get yourself up to that level of quality, it's better to wait and submit that application later. Uh, so I'm, I'm with you. Chance to disagree, okay. but I'm not going to take it this time. Uh, <laughs> What about after you press submit? What, what do you have to do after you press submit? Um, anything to follow up with the school? Uh, any, any advice that you'd give there? So, you know, it's always interesting to me when I first started this um, job. I remember we were working so hard with all these students to get their applications done, and they'd finally be ready to press submit. And I, you know, email them and say, oh, did you submit your blah, blah, blah application? They say, oh, no, not yet. And I was like, what are you, why? Like, don't you want to be done? I want to be done. Don't you want to be done? Like, why have you not done this? Um, and it occurred to me, it took me a year or two to kind of realize that one of the reasons people hadn't pressed submit is that you realize then that any control you had left on this process is gone. Right? That at this point, you have to let the chips fall where they may. Right? Some of this, this, your decision is ultimately now in somebody else's hands. And I see parent, I had a parent call just today where a parent was doing this. And, and in fairness, this is probably more a parent thing sometimes than a student, but it definitely goes both ways. But where a parent or a student can't let something go, like they just keep on kind of needling with it and tweaking it and touching it. And I kind of get very frustrated with that. I'm like, just let it go. But I realized when I do that, it's because it's still then in their control, right? They still feel like they have some control over this process if they're fidgeting, even though they're fidgeting and not doing anything, right? Mm-hmm. The minute you press that submit button, is done, right? And then your fate is in somebody else's hands. And that can be really nerve-wracking, and I get And I've had many parents say, you know, I thought the admissions process, you know, that the application process was hard, but the waiting is harder. I have people tell me that every year, and I get that. But at the end of the day, you have to trust that you've done the best you can with your application, and then you've got to let it go, right? You worrying about it or tweaking it every five seconds is really not helping you. So press submit, go, you know, take a nap. Go out for ice cream. <laughs> do whatever it is you have enough time to go do because you've been working on this application. More importantly, yeah. go bring your mother a glass of wine. That's what I would want. That would be my personal preference. But <laughs> yeah. I guarantee your parents are also worried about this. Everybody should have a win as soon as you press submit. Um, and, this, and then you've got to let it end. I really believe that if you've done what you should have done and you've done your best work 
I do believe that this tends to, every kind of the results tend to happen the way they're supposed to. Right. And you can, you can even get your parents to go ahead and send Karen a bottle of champagne so she can sell it. You can do that too. Always. I might even (laughs) give them my address publicly for that. That'd be fine. Thank you, Karen, uh, for your expert advice on this show and all the past shows you've been a part of. Those of you who are big fans of Karen's, like I am, will be disappointed to hear that this will be her very last appearance with us on Getting In because she's moving on to a new job with our company. Karen, it's been delightful to have you here, and we're going to miss you. Thank you, Ian. I always enjoy being on your show. Keep up the good work. Will do. All right, folks, we'll be back to talk about the FAFSA after this break. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Helen Hillix, Todd Benton, and Chris Reeves. Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. And we're back. We're going to talk all about the FAFSA today. And because it's a behemoth of a financial aid form, we've got a nice long segment 
to help you with everything you need to know about it. Joining me to talk us through the FAFSA is Tara Pianthanita Kelly. Welcome back to the show, Tara. Great. Thanks, Ian. Nice to be here as always. Yeah, so we're not going to waste any time. You said before the show that a lot of parents freak out about completing the FAFSA, and it's kind of like getting a shot because the anticipation is actually worse than the real thing. So let's help families understand what to expect, and we'll get started with steps for completing the FAFSA. What are those steps? All right. All right, great. Well, I I think they're really kind of just four main steps, but the first two are kind of interchangeable. Um, the, The first one I say is to go get your federal student aid ID. That's kind of the, the, what the student and the parent uses to sign the FAFSA. So you, you can get that even before the FAFSA opens. If you wanted to get that, you know, two months ago, you could do that. Um, you would just go to the FAFSA page, fafsa.gov, and up towards the top, there's a bar that says uh, FSA ID. You click on that. It'll take you to the place where you're, you would get that information. Uh, you'd put in your Social Security number, your name, your date of birth, and you, then you would create this, this federal student aid ID. So both the student is going to do that, and if it's a dependent student, one of their parents is going to do that. And then the next step is to actually complete the FAFSA. So that's on FAFSA.gov. And uh, that's the only site where you're going to complete the FAFSA, so FAFSA.gov. And something to keep in mind is that the FAFSA is what we call year-specific, meaning that uh, if you go to the FAFSA.gov right now, there are two different FAFSAs that you can complete right now. One is the 2017-18 FAFSA, and the other is the 2018-19 FAFSA. So always be sure that you're completing the correct FAFSA. So, And then once you enter all of the information on the FAFSA, uh, both the student and the parent will sign it, use it with their federal student aid IDs. And then after you submit it, uh, you're going to want to go back onto the FAFSA.gov uh, website a few, in maybe 72 hours and check for something called the student aid report or the, the, the SAR is what they call it in the financial aid industries. And that's just the results of the FAFSA. And it tells you all of your answers that you put on the FAFSA. It gives you some comments. But what you're really looking for there is something called the Student's Expected Family Contribution, or EFC. Mm-hmm. That's going to be on the star as well. On the front page, you'll see something that's just EFC colon 000 and then some numbers. That's the, the student's EFC that was calculated using the FAFSA. And that's the number that all the schools are going to use to determine if the student qualifies for any need-based aid at their school or not. And then the last thing that you're going to want to do is only if you need to correct something, you can always go back onto the, the FAFSA and correct something if it's wrong. So you, you can't update anything, but if you put in something that was wrong initially, you can go back in and correct it. Gotcha. So, so to recap, you want to start with your student aid ID. You want to complete the FAFSA at fafsa.gov, and that's the only place to do it. You can then mm-hmm. check for the SAR back on that fafsa.gov website, and then you can correct anything that's wrong. So four big steps with a lot of little pieces that go on into them. I wanted to ask you a question uh, for my own curiosity. Is there a reason that a family would ever submit um, the next year's FAFSA this year? Uh, Would I want to fill out the 2018-19 FAFSA this year? Well, sure. If if a student is a senior in high school right now, they're going to be completing the Uh, 2018-19 FAFSA. So that, that it, so it's year specific, but in, so for 2018-19, you're going to do that in fall of 2017. So right now, 
Um, gotcha. But imagine there are students right now that um, just, uh, they're like, oh, well, I didn't think I was going to go to college, or, or maybe I did go to college, and now I think I need some financial aid, and they're currently enrolled right now. They can do the 2017-18 FAFSA right now as well. Gotcha. Good. It's a good thing I'm on the show to ask silly questions because uh, that's, that's some <laughs> nice clarity for everybody. Uh, we need a, a layperson here to ask that stuff. Um, so what goes in the FAFSA? It's, it's complicated. It's got a lot of pages. What's the information that uh, uh, needs to be reported there? Okay, great. So the, the FAFSA, and it walks you through this when you go to FAFSA.gov. And, and, right. the stu- and now another thing I want to point out is the FAFSA is the student application. It's not the parent's application. It's, it's the student. So the student is going to be the one to start the FAFSA. And it'll start by just collecting some student demographic information, you know, student social security number, date of birth, where they live, you know, driver's license number. And then it'll, it's going to go, once it collects that, it's going to ask the student for their school selection. So the student's going to want to have their list of schools that they're applying to right handy, and they'll put in their school selections. And then it will ask the student about the student's income and the student's assets. And so the student will in, input that information. And at that point, it will ask the, theory, the student a series of what we call dependency questions. It's going to ask the student, um, you know, any, all, a number of questions. And if the student answers no to all of those questions, then it says, okay, based on this information, you're a dependent student. So now we need your parents' information. So the parents are going to log on. The parents are going to give their demographic information. The parents are going to give their income and asset information. And once all of that is collected, both the student is going to sign using their federal student aid ID, and the parent is going to sign using their federal student aid ID. And once it's submitted, then they get a confirmation. So that's kind of the, the step-by-step process of, of what goes into the FAFSA. Gotcha. And there are some there are some tutorials on the website that can help support you through this, like uh, you know question and answer forms and uh, tips and so forth on the website itself. Oh, absolutely. There's uh, so they, there's a frequently asked questions section. It's kind of hard to find, but what what you really need to know is that there is a help section built into every single page of the FAFSA. So let's say you're put you're in the asset information and you're like, gosh, I'm I don't know if this counts as an asset or not. There's you can click on help and it'll it'll give you the help feature for that particular question right while you're in the FAFSA. So lots of areas where you can get help. So you know usually. When I want to do my taxes, which is a complicated form as well, I got to have a lot of stuff with me. I got to wait for those W-2s. I got to have, um, you know, all of the other information about my mortgage, whatever, uh, to be able to actually complete my taxes. What are the things that I need to have on hand if I'm going to complete the FAFSA? Okay, great. That's a great question. So, so let's say you're, you're like you put aside, you know, a couple of hours on a Sunday afternoon. You're going to sit down and get this FAFSA thing done. What are you going to want to collect before you do that? Um, you're, for each person that's going to be on the FAFSA, so definitely the student, um, and if it's a dependent student, definitely the parent, one of the parents, you're going to want to have the Social Security number, um, the correct name, and I know that sounds strange, but there's, there's going to be a, a database match with the Social Security Administration. So you're going to want the Social Security number, uh, the name that's listed on that Social Security card, and the, the birth date, and uh, the driver's license. So the student is going to want to have all that information, and the parent is also going to want to have that same information. So uh, you get, get all of those things together. And then uh, for tax information, you're going to want to collect information for a specific tax year. We call it the base year. So if you're doing the 2018-19 FAFSA, 
the base year of income that they're going to look at is 2016. So you're going to want to have your 2016 taxes and W-2 ready so that when it tells you, okay, now we need your adjusted gross income, it'll tell you which line to, to look at, and you could put that on. Um, if you're looking for sources of untaxed income, that will show on your W-2 form. Like any money that you put into your 401k during 2016 is technically considered untaxed income. So having your W-2 in front of you is going to be very helpful. When it gets to asset information, uh, both the student and the parent will be asked about their assets. So you're going to want to know balances for things like your checking accounts and savings accounts. And um, if you have some investment accounts that aren't part of a retirement account, so things like, you know, a 529 plan would count as an investment, uh, a parent investment, uh, or if you have a brokerage account, you're going to want to know the balances for those. If you have any uh, real estate other than the family's primary residence, you're going to want to know what equity you have in those um, uh, pieces of property. Uh, If you own a business, then they're going to want to know what the business assets are unless the business qualifies as a small family-owned business. Um, And if you own a farm, (laughs) then they're going to want to know the value of, you know, the equity that you have in the farm, again, unless it qualifies as as a family farm. So um, those are kind of the income and asset things. And then you're also going to want to have the list of the schools that the student wants to apply to. So once you have all of those things gathered together, you should be able to sit down, get the FAFSA done in probably less than a half an hour. And I know you've got a list of tips. I want to ask you the one just about the schools first, um, because I know that sometimes people run into uh, some questions when it comes time to actually add that list of schools. Uh, and we'll get to a few other t- FAFSA tips, that hopefully as many as we can in the time that we have. Uh, but I understand you can only put 10 schools on your initial FAFSA. What if you want to apply to more than 10? Uh, well, that, that's it. You can only apply to 10. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's a way around that. So, so what you're going to do is you'll, you'll put your, your 10 schools first and you'll submit the FAFSA. And as soon as you do that, uh, this, those, that information gets sent, your FAFSA information gets sent to all 10 of those schools. So then you can go back. Um, I usually like to say wait 48 to 72 hours after you submit those schools. Go back into your FAFSA and delete the school codes and, that you had already submitted. Put in the new school codes for the new schools that want your FAFSA information and then resubmit that. If you wanted to you know, apply to 30 schools, not that I'm recommending that, but if you did, then you would just continue to do that process until all 30 schools uh, have received your FAFSA information. Yeah, and as, as the admissions guy here, I would say you should probably be applying to no more than 10 schools anyway. That's you know, that's neither here nor there, but uh, we'll have another segment right. on that. But I keep it to 10 anyway. It's a lot of work to apply to more than 10. Um, all right, you've got some other good tips. Uh I wanted to ask a quick question for you because when, when I'm in these financial forms, I'm doing my, my taxes or whatever else like this, I get really scared that if I leave my computer because I don't have something, that it's going to delete all my work. Uh, is, is there a way to save it and come back to it later? Yes, there is. There, and so let's, let's say you're doing the FAFSA and uh, you get to a, a place and you're stuck. You're like, I have a question about this. I don't know how to answer it. You know, even when you click on the, the help information on the side, you're like, gosh, it's still, I still wish I could just ask somebody a question about this. If you want to save it, you, you can absolutely save it. It'll, it'll give you a, um, at the beginning of the FAFSA, it says, you know, here, not, in addition to the federal student aid ID, they'll say, you know, create like a four-digit PIN for this particular FAFSA. So if you need to save it, you can come back to right, right where you left off and you can do that. So you can save it, go out of the FAFSA, 
you know, make a phone call, see if you can get your, um, your the question answered, and then go back into the FAFSA when you have your information, put it in, and, and you're good to go. Submit it, you know, sign it, and submit it, and you're good to go. Um, one kind of unfortunately common thing is that uh, people forget, so they, they sign it, and they don't actually hit the submit button. It, let's say you, oh. you had a question, and you, you left, and you didn't come back within 45 days, at the end of that 45 days, they will wipe out your FAFSA. So, you know, I'm not, I can't imagine you'd take 45 days to, to get an answer for a question, but just know if you leave your FAFSA unsubmitted for 45 days, it will wipe out all the information. Yeah, please don't do that. That's that's a special no. kind of procrastination, right? There's way right. 45 <laughs> days from when you started it. So try and do it all in one. And you're saying it's not so bad to do this. I mean, it sounds like it's pretty complicated, right? But But you want to give people a little bit of a encouragement that it's, it's not quite as bad as they think. Yeah. You know, um, what, what I often hear when I uh, talk to some of my families and I check in with them afterwards, they say, you know, I got to the place where I submitted and then I thought, well, that's it. <laughs> that, that wasn't so bad. It's like, no, it's, it's, it's not that bad. Um, so, you know, you just got to jump in with both feet um, and, and get it done. When you hit the submit button, you'll, you'll probably have the same reaction. Oh, that's not so bad. Why was I so worried about this? Perfect. I like to hear that. Uh, there are some other tips that you had here um, that, that I think would be helpful. One about the, the number zero. Uh, what's the tip on the number zero about the FAFSA? Yeah, well, the FAFSA will ask you, you know, a series of questions, and sometimes the answer to the question is zero. Like, let, let's say it, it says uh gosh, you know, an investment amount or, or taxes paid or, you know, a, you're, and the answer is zero, some people will just leave that blank, saying, oh, well, this doesn't apply to me. The answer is zero, so I'll leave it blank. Don't do that. If, you know, if, if the answer is zero, go ahead and put zero, because if you leave it blank, then the school is going to actually come back to you and say, what did you mean by this? Is, did you just not answer it, or is it zero? Which is it? So um, go ahead and answer zero if it's zero. It'll, it'll uh, make the schools happier, and it'll eventually make you happier, because the schools won't have to hunt you down to ask you a question. That all sounds perfect, and I feel like I'm looking at these tips that you sent me. And by the way, everyone, Tara does a great job putting this stuff together. <laughs> um, it looks like we got through everything that, that we want to we wanted to mention to our families. Is there anything else from your list of tips that you want to make sure to to get in before we do our closing? Um, probably the one related to the data retrieval tool. So, so oh, if yeah. you filed federal income taxes, when you do the FAFSA, you will be given the opportunity to link over to your tax information on the IRS using something called the IRS data retrieval tool, and it will uh, populate the information right onto your FAFSA. And if, if you do that, then schools won't have to ask you about any questions there because they'll be flagged, oh, this family just, they took their information right off of the taxes from the IRS. I know that information is accurate. I don't need to ask anything else. So if you can use the data retrieval tool, um, I recommend doing it. Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you, Tara, for your expertise on this topic and your ability to, I hope, calm some parents down about this little bit stressful, but easier than you think financial aid form. Thanks for coming. Right. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Ian. At uh, College Coach, we've been posting a FAFSA tip of the week video and a profile tip of the week, that's the CSS profile, video on our Facebook page. So be sure to go to our College Coach Facebook page at facebook.com slash college coach for more tips. 
There's a ton of great stuff there, and you'll get to meet some of our financial aid experts. It's pretty awesome. Uh, We'll also be doing a segment recording on October 26th about completing the CSS profile. Uh, A lot of other schools require the profile in addition to the FAFSA. So keep an eye out for that if you're a subscriber to the podcast. And if you're not, go ahead and subscribe so you'll know when that episode is available. Next week, our Standing Out series continues with some advice on where to apply. Yes, it's true that standing out in a crowd is often about choosing which crowd you want to be a part of. We'll have more there. We'll also be answering your listener questions on admission and financial aid, so please send those to us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'd like to give a shout out to my Diamondbacks who just couldn't push past the Dodgers this week, but I do want to thank them for ending their season before the NBA starts. It's the best time of the year. Hope you all have a wonderful October wherever you may be. We'll see you back here again next week on Getting In, and thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. We'll be right back.